Welcome to Open Plaza, a podcast created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. Each episode, we focus on a topic that matters to you, whether you're in the field, the academy, or the clergy. My name is Stephen Detrolio Coakley. Today, we bring you a conversation between Jacqueline Hidalgo, Santiago Slabotsky, and Elias Ortega about the entanglements of Jewishness, Blackness, and Latinidades. For more information about today's talk, go to htiopenplaza.org. I am Jacqueline Hidalgo. I'm a professor of Latina, Latino, Latinx studies and religion at Williams College, where I'm currently serving as the Associate Dean for Institutional Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. And I'm super excited to join um, a couple of my colleagues today to talk to you. And I'll just ask them to introduce themselves briefly, and then I'll say a little bit about what we're talking about. Hello, everyone. My name is Santiago Slavotsky. I teach Jewish studies at Hofstra University, where I hold the Florence and Robert Kaufman chair. Uh, and I am actually very happy to be talking about this issue with you today. I am uh, Elias Ortega, and I have the pleasure of serving as president of Naval Lombard Theological School. And I also serve as a professor of religion, ethics, and leadership. And the school is located in Chicago, Illinois. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you both, Santiago and Elias, so much for joining me today. Um, I'm excited to talk to you. And I, I, I reached out to both of you, both because I just really want to know what you had to say uh, when some of this news broke. And I want to say a little bit about um, by way of context. I don't want this conversation to be about one particular person, but there is a person that, that uh, inspired me to think about some questions that I, I want to hear from you from. And so by way of context for our listeners, you know, right now it's, uh, the, what happened is in early September of 2020, uh, Jessica Krug um, posted a, a blog to Medium and it sparked a lot of stories that I thought could be a really good jumping off point for a broader conversation about the relationships between Jewishness and race in the USA, as well as Latinidades, Puerto Ricanness, Blackness, academia. Until recently, Jessica Krug was an associate professor of history at George Washington University, meaning she had tenure, and she authored a well-regarded historical book, Fugitive Modernities. In early September, she published a blog post via Medium in which she outed herself as a, quote, culture leech, end quote, who had, quote, eschewed her lived experience as a white Jewish child in Kansas City, end quote. And throughout her adult life, she has instead performed Blackness, posing as North African, as U.S. Black and Caribbean Black, particularly posing as a poor Afro-Puerto Rican from the Bronx. As Yomaira C. Figueroa Vasquez, a prominent Afro-Puerto Rican scholar and associate professor of Afro-Diaspora Studies at Michigan, Michigan State University, quickly testified on Twitter and then in other media, Krug only wrote her strange blog post because a group of Afro-Latinx scholars had researched Krug's background and were trying to find a way to ethically confront her. She must have been tipped off by some of the research that had been done, and so she outed herself first. This story caught my attention in part because I met Krug once in 2014. Now, I don't know Krug well at all. It was just once. I don't know when she inaugurated her blackface minstrel show, which hopefully we'll talk a little bit more about, and I don't know why. 
I do know both personally and professionally, multiple black women, African-Americans and Afro-Latinas in the United States whom she has harmed. Um, but her professional circles overlapped with mine, though we only spoke once. At the same time, I realized in reading about her that we grew up only a few years and a few miles apart, both graduates of two wealthy private prep schools in Kansas City. And because I was a scholarship student at the rival private prep school um, to her school, and because I'm a pale Latina who grew up in a similar environment and now has tenure at an elite private college, I think I felt implicated or perhaps even complicit in the story. And it made me think about some issues. Now I wanna name a couple of great essays that are out there if folks wanna read more that I think have gone over some issues and also to sort of set the uh, landscape for other issues we might look at. And then the first was Toure Reed's essay in Jacobin and he specifically named what Krug did as a minstrel show that was disturbing and all the more disturbing for the ways that US academia nurtured, enabled, and solicited her show. Um, similarly, writing for The New Yorker, Lauren Michelle Jackson described the layers of deception in Krug's performance and also powerfully indicted the humanities within US academia, but also quite pointedly, she indicted black studies and the ways that white supremacy also structures hierarchies within the field, not simply observable among the prominence of white scholars of black studies, but also among the colorist hierarchy that structures black scholarship. Now, what was under theorized for me in much of this media attention has to do with a couple of additional markers of race and ethnicity and class um, and space. And I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about the entangling of Jewishness, Kansas City, New York, class, blackness, Puerto Ricanness, and the academy today. Um, and I think, uh, you know, of interest to me, and one of the places I, I thought we could start is the way that Krug's Jewishness has appeared, both in her own blog but also in so many of the media representations where it is often simply attached to whiteness and left undescribed. And I think that there are a few different things here. So I wanna start maybe with that kind of question to you, Santiago. Like what is going on in the sort of intertwining here of Jewishness and race and the United States in this story? Okay, Jackie, first of all, thank you very much for the introduction and for actually Framing the discussion in questions that perhaps some people haven't asked, even though, as you mentioned, there are people who have explored this issue very well, we can do much more what we will have. First of all, I want to acknowledge from where I'm writing. I am writing right now from Upper Manhattan, almost the Bronx, in a neighborhood that is half Dominican and half Jewish. And I think that this is very important to mention is because there is a street, Broadway, that cross one and the other. This is the area where Krog called herself coming from. And it is very interesting to think that uh, there is a clear delimitation and clear line between one side and the other. Myself, I don't belong to neither one or the other community or I belong to both. So that brings some questions in terms of how to understand what was happening through Krug in this place and this moment. And I think that the first question I will ask is whether or not this should be a Jewish question at all. On the one hand, I think it is important that we think it is. Why? Because 
she called herself with a particular way that have people have referred to Jews as almost a parasite of society. At the same time, the media has insisted, and this is something that actually Jackie in a previous conversation pointed out, that they have been adding always this her description as a white Jewish woman, talking about this long-standing anti-Semitic conception of Jews as being deceivers and cheaters. So in the context in which we have seen a resurgence of anti-Semitism in the US, thinking that both the speaker and the interpretation just reproduce anti-Semitic stereotypes makes it a Jewish question. At the same time, by making it a Jewish question, I think that we might be invisibilizing other elements, such as the impossibility of certain populations to uh, have a, a recognized voice unless they, someone else speaks for them. This is a little bit the performance she was trying to portray. This is what the difference that we see when I am looking out of my window right now and I see a Dominican neighborhood against a Jewish neighborhood uh, who can actually speak for the people who are here. The major difference, for example, have been in COVID, um, uh, 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 in COVID uh, victims in one side and the other of the street and shows a little bit about the different lives that these people live that somehow Craig was trying to entangle. The problem is not entanglement, but the way that she entangled them. She entangled them by representing a voice that should be represented by other people. At the same time, in a moment in which, and I think this is particularly important, in a moment in which uh, we see a new level of appraising of Black Lives Matter, where people are paying attention to other Jewish voices, to Jewish voices that they are coming from other places and other experiences, especially Afro-American or African Jewish voices, Latino Jewish voices, East Asian Jewish voices. This is a moment in which the discourses have presented Jewishness and Blackness as a complete, uh, uh, I would say, uh, uh, dichotomic, uh, dichotomic spaces. And I want to think whether or not we can actually think about this case to talk about uh, the way that people see the impossibility of these histories, these histories that they are, uh, they are not, uh, they are not um, uh, histories of people who are confused, as Amanda movie just recently wrote in the blog, but there are people who are confusing. So what Craig tried to do is not to be confused, is to uh, portray herself in a particular way that she will be easily recognized. And the question is, what kind of histories, what kind of memories, what kind of lives, people who are holding with them multiple histories, intersecting the multiple discriminations, anti-Semitism on the one hand and anti-Black racism on the other, it can help us to understand. So I will try, try to take crack case and the question where not is this a Jewish point or not, but if, if in the following way. I think it is Jewish if this allows us to speak about those histories and those memories and those voices having invisibilized. If by talking about a Jewish issue, by reproducing more of the same of the mainstream Jewish experience, creating, for example, analogies between suffering of the Holocaust and suffering in, uh, in slavery, I think we're going to be missing the point. 
So I would just say that the entanglement between Jewishness and, for example, Blackness or Latinoness doesn't only happen with Blackface. It happened on people out there who can tell us something. So we should take this case to listen to them instead of all the time thinking about Jewishness and Blackness as complete two separate issues that they don't intersect unless someone uses, uses a Blackface. Yeah, I, I, I want to say a couple things and then I want to maybe open up a, a different kind of space. But in the couple things I wanted to say is that when we were talking uh, last week um, and also out of, you know, also some things that came up in conversations I had with my colleague, Jeff Israel Williams, um, we, you know, we were talking about the history of Ashkenazi Jews in the United States, the sort of complicated relationship between them and whiteness in the U.S., and the ways that there has been this fraught history of Ashkenazi Jewish performance of blackface um, that, that is both about um, the sort of relationship to, to whiteness and the promises of whiteness, but has also been at the same time about the ways that, um, that Jewish folks had been otherized and had identified with otherness. In, in the Americas. Jewishness in the Americas isn't just about whiteness. And that even what we think of as white Jewishness has its own complicated histories in the United States. And, and one of the things I was reminded of in talking to another friend of mine from high school, Leslie Friedman, uh, you know, whose sister uh, had known Jess when we were kids, was that in Kansas City, the Kansas City Country Club only admitted Jewish members in 1990 or 1991. So there's, first of all, in, in Jess Krug's own life, there, the, the kind of minoritization of what we think of as white Jewish folk in the United States wasn't that distant, in fact, um, although it was quite distinct from what was the much more repressive openly spatially discriminatory politics of Kansas City vis-a-vis -vis African Americans when I was growing up, where that was quite clearly and systemically expressed in ways, in, in ways that were distinct. And I think that part of what you are sort of raising here, though, is this other side, which is instead of thinking about this history of Ashkenazi Jewishness in the United States, can some of what this story does help us instead to think about the other forms of Jewishness and the other kinds of, and I like this word that you're using and I want you to explain it more, the other kinds of entanglements of Jewishness with different histories in the Americas. And so maybe you could just say a little bit more about what you mean by entanglements and, and then speak to that. So thank you so much, Jackie, for this. You know, this truly allowed me to actually expand much more of what I have said before. So thank you for the opportunity. Uh, I believe that, you know, uh, in my research, part of the work I have done in my research is to actually show about the multiple ways in which uh, different populations since the 16th century have been entangled with each other in a particular network of colonial colonization. 
Uh, it is in this framework in which different people maintenance are going to be confused by different European powers. Uh, and this confusion would lead to certain people, so certain um, narratives that people are going to actually raise as uh, alternative narratives of where to place themselves besides where the empire placed them. So this is about a, a way of resistance and re-existence confronting the geopolitics of colonization. Uh, and I think that European Jews in general and Ashkenazi Jews in uh, the US, of course, haven't been uh, foreign to this. We can see that one of the major points of encounter between Afro-Americans and, uh, and, um, and Ashkenazi Jews have been in the Communist Party in the first part of the 20th century. Of course, we are particularly focusing, again, not so much then in terms of uh, the place of origin of the people, uh, but also the geographical difference in the use itself. This is not about Kansas, this is about New York. This might be eventually perhaps even about California and about Chicago and other big places. So most of the time we actually talk about the Ashkenazi Jewish experience coming from these big centers where you are going to see a different level of relationalities that people have constructed for a long time. Now, things started to change in the 1940s uh, for multiple reasons, multiple geopolitical reasons in the US and throughout the world. Uh, and eventually, you know, we are going to have a change following just asserting that Jews, that, uh, that Afro-Americans are anti-Semitic because they are anti-white. Presenting a really clear distinction between one and the other beyond any kind of what I call entanglement. And by entanglement means discourses about uh, discourses uh, of resignation about people and also discourse of existence and existences that people generated from there. So this is what I meant by entanglements. Now, I think it's very, very important something you mentioned is the following. Most of the time, we are thinking about the epoch changes, the racial reconfigurations, thinking about major centers. Uh, and I think that when we think about Judaism in particular or Jewishness in particular, uh, that is not necessarily wrong. We are going to see the concentration of Jews in New York is unparalleled throughout the world, except for Israel. And as such, you know, it is important to understand that Jews in New York, that set the pace for the rest of the country. That doesn't mean every, every uh, change is unequivocal, every change is immediate, every change happens simultaneously. Is it possible that Craig didn't, didn't feel as a complete white person, taking into account the upbringing you bring, and in this way she found a way to slowly identifying herself to the extent that she was lost on it. There are two levels here. One is the personal level and the other is what I will call the sociological level. At the personal level, honestly, I don't know. I haven't met her. I think that Jackie uh, Hidalgo has much closer, a closer perspective on this because she was in the context and might have had even some common relations. Who knows about this? Uh, and I am foreign to this. I grew up in a different place. I grew up in a place where I can tell you for sure, sure Jews were not seen as white. Jews were persecuted by a dictatorship that was trying to impose a Christian and Western civilization. So as such, my experience is very different. It could be that Craig is more my contemporary in Kansas, as a more contemporary of Kansas as was in Buenos Aires in Argentina, more than in New York. It is possible. At the same time, if I were to portray 
uh, we are not to understand uh, the levels of, uh, of privilege that come with my Jewishness, even coming from Latin America, and even having been raised as a Latino, which is something I still struggle with, um, uh, because a very much US ethnic term. Uh, I think that I will be insulting the struggles and memories of multiple people. So I believe that if someone, I close with this, if there is someone who has been particularly, um, uh, uh, particularly intense in her study of racial constructions, in order not to acknowledge her levels of privilege and the place she occupy is the problem. So I believe in this moment, the personal sociological turn together and to say that this is not just about, uh, I would say, personal trauma. This is about something else. Uh, someone can be uncomfortable in the place the in the in the place that the structure has placed you. This is not a justification to steal the memory and voice of someone else. Yeah, thank you. I, I think that that really captures well some of the tensions here. That there is a, you know, this sort of tension of we don't know Craig, we don't know what she was saying or thinking or why she did this. Um, I can, you know, like I said, speak to a sense that Kansas City in the 1990s was a hard place to be anything other than like a cis, white, heterosexual, evangelical Christian, right? But that it doesn't, that acknowledgement doesn't give license to then try to pass off that experience um, by performing the worst stereotypes of other people. And this is partially where I, I really thought it was important to, I really wanted to hear also Elias's take because it's not just that Krug performed um, any form of blackness. She specifically tried to perform a very working class Bronx-based Puerto Rican blackness, um, something that has its own long and important history that defy the stereotypes that she performed and something that Elias has written extensively about in his research on the, the young lords and in ethics. And so I thought maybe he would speak a little bit about this under, what I think is under theorized also in talking about her is the choice to perform working class Puerto Ricanness in the Bronx. Um, and I, I'm wondering about what, what Elias maybe makes of that and the place that that holds in the US at present. Thank you, Jackie, for, for the invitation to, to speak and, and thank you, Santiago. I think, you know, the, let me first start by, by saying that uh, two things. Uh, one, first to acknowledge my own um, location right? as a, as a fair-skinned Afro-Latino, uh, cis-presenting uh, male uh, who grew up between Newark and, and Puerto Rico. Um, I think that's uh, in some ways it's a very common and typical uh, Puerto Rican story right? in which you uh, grew up in, in the diaspora in, in between the island and the mainland, so to speak. I also want to think about when this happened in the beginning of September, 
because for the um, Afro-Latino community, and I think particularly in the context of the city, these are some, it is a particular time. Many of us are still grieving the death of, of Miriam Jimenez Roman, who passed in August 8. And for many of us, um, the, the reality is that she, alongside with her partner husband, um, Juan Flores, were some of the primary instigators and intellectuals, right, to think through the question of, of Afro-Latinidad in the context not only in the United States, but externally as well. And particularly to think through the question of Afro-Provicanness. Like they're, they're, they're both very instrumental uh, in that particular context. And, and I would say particularly of, of Miriam um, Jimenez Roman, um, she was instrumental in, in, in uh, really nurturing folks, uh, mentoring uh, many not only scholars, but also activists into the, this process of both affirming um, our blackness, but also understanding the ways in which uh, race and gender can be performed in the United States um, and abroad from another Latino context. It is also in the middle of August, um, August 18 is, is the birthday um, of, of Roberto Clemente, the, the famous uh, black Puerto Rican uh, baseball player from uh, um, Pirates uh, Pittsburgh. And for, for many of us, right, uh, growing up and hearing the story of, of Clemente was one of the first uh, heroes in which we hear an affirmation of blackness, right, in, within the context. So these two things are happening uh, in the months of August, right, we're mourning the death of uh, uh, Miriam, and we're also remembering the birth and life of, of Clemente. And then early September, right, we hear the, this news um, of a, a white scholar, right, uh, presenting as um, Afro-Latina in the Bronx. Um, the, there's a lot that can be said, right, uh, I think from a, for me, particularly from a place of, of anger, right, and a place of, of disgust, uh, of what does it mean to, uh, to appropriate, right, the, the heritage of, of particular community, right, not, not only an Afro-Latino community, but in general, right, trying to, to uh, blackfish as a way to uh, move forward, right, in, in your career and in your life and, and as a point of access. Um, and, and I think for me, this is possible uh, within, uh, and, and perhaps if not possible, a real danger in how Blackness operates in, um, in Latino cultures and in the Caribbean. Uh, one of the, the distinctions uh, I think it is important for us to keep in mind is that colorism uh, plays a much bigger role uh, in, in, in Caribbean cultures and, and in Latino cultures. So for example, one of the things that I answered recently into a conversation is around um, Isabel uh, Wilkerson book cast. Uh, from um, a Caribbean perspective, right, that book makes a particular kind of sense, right, because the caste system and in, in how it, it functions in puts you in, in, in categories of, of performance, right? Cultural access, uh, uh, political access and the like, is very clear how it works. So in some ways we have a, an innate sense, right? That there's a particular kind of uh, texturization to how we speak about race that is a bit different from the, the kind of Jim Crow black and white economy that is so prevalent in the, in the United States. Uh, but it's also important to understand, uh, and I think this is a point that I'm surprised not to see in the Wilkinson book is, uh, how do we really understand the, the, the capitalist impulse that also drive that, those kind of conceptualization of, of the caste system, right? So colorization works because it also is connected to access to power, wealth, privilege, and resources. Uh, and I think that is important and it's easy to miss. In, in, in the case of, of Jessica, right, I think she was, uh, if we think about her own construction, right, and the ways that she, she's appropriating blackness, she's going to those 
particular spaces in which blackness is contested, right? First, um, Algerian, right? And then uh, later on, uh, Afro-Provican, right? These are spaces in which blackness are, are always contested and not primarily, not so much perhaps inter-communal, uh, communal, right? But extra-communal, right? How will other folks see you and accept it within the context in which you are? Uh, from my own personal experience, I remember something that happened to me when I was in uh, grad school, right? And I was working um, in, in a grocery store and um, in the particular team that I was working, there were some, some members. Uh, uh, this is a conversation that happened with a, a Mexican team member um, and three African-Americans, one from the South and two from, from the North, right? And, and it was interesting to be present uh, in a conversation which they are debating uh, your closeness or, or removedness from, from blackness right, without your experience. And, and the argument basically revolved around whether or not I, I was brown uh, or I was black, right? And, 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 and it was interesting to see that the, the marketing point for them is that I was Puerto Rican, right? I was Boricua. And in, in, the, in the minds of my two uh, kind of Northern um, African-American colleagues, right? That is the far, the, that is the last exit, right? From blackness before you become brown, right? Um, or Latinos in their mind. And for them, that's the way that we're talking about it. Um, and I was kind of intrigued not to be part of that conversation, but being talked about. And, and I'll say that's also been my experience in, in other contexts in which, you know, I have to always make a case for the ways in which I am black, right? I am Afro-Latino because in, in the phenotype categorization on the US, uh, it is not often clear. Now, that is not a question that happens in, in other contexts. So I think there's uh, in itself a kind of porosity, uh, right, and a texturing that uh, Krug was able to exploit, right, within a community in which uh, these conversations are ongoing, right? And oftentimes, um, the, the last marker for me that make that case is that um, blackness is not only cultural blackness, but it's also a political orientation, right? It is a political project. And particularly within Afro, um, Latino communities, right? Thinking and working um, and acting out of uh, uh, the, the legacy of the global Black freedom movement is essential. So some of the ways in which she exploit that is very clear in testimonies that talk to the ways in which she performed this political purity, right? That it has to be always revolutionary, always in the edge, right? To um, pushing, right, for a particular kind of um, conceptualization. So for me, that, that points to that awareness, right? And that intentionality, in appropriating that particular identity and being able to exploit it in a way to get her own benefit. Um, the last thing that I'm gonna mention uh, at the moment and, and the ways in which she performs that is by, by the nickname, right? Jess um, La Bambolera, right? Uh, I think uh, for those of us who, who research bomba music, right? We understand that in Puerto Rico, that is one of the primary expression of, of blackness and resistance, right? To speak about bomba uh, music in Puerto Rico is to, is, is to speak about black legacy, slavery, and resistance. But I think there's no uh, two ways around that uh, in, in the way in which that is going. It is also a time in which there's a, a resurgence of understanding bomba as a lived tradition uh, instead of just folklore or something from the past. Right? So there's, uh, in some ways, um, a revival right, of, of bomba in which you have uh, groups uh, and, and thinkers like, like Rafael Maja, for example, among many others, or uh, Ifeid Le and others really talking and working from that particular space of, of Afro-Puerican blackness and, and bomba that she's able to, to explore, right? So when she mentions a name, nickname herself that way, she's also connected, right, to the long legacy of, of slavery right, and blackness 
in, in Puerto Rico, right, and to move into the ways in which that is politicized also in, in the diaspora, particularly in New York. Uh, now, the, the question I think for me then becomes, um, how do we then, as uh, uh, Latinos, right, and, and Latinx, then deal with the ways in which anti-Black racism filter through our own relations, right? Because I think there is a benefit, uh, whiteness can be seductive, right? Um, and it is a benefit uh, for, for many, right, to figure out how do you explore your connection to whiteness, both as a, a safety, right, but also as a way of progress, right, in, in a particular context that both um, exoticize you and wants you in, but also works a way to um, exclude you. So I think that's why the academic context is so important, right, as a tool of colonization, because the, the, the lighter you are and the more white safe you are presenting as a person of color, oftentimes the more opens you have, uh, the more doors you have open for you, right, and, and it's part of that challenge that I think we see her exploiting. Thank you so much, Elias and Santiago, for this insightful conversation where we discussed how the news stories around Krug eliminate the entangled constructions of Jewish, Black, and Latinx identities. I look forward to speaking with you further next time when we will examine the Academy's role in enabling someone like Krug, and particularly how gender performance was part of her academically desirable menstrual show. Thank you again, and see you next time. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides these podcasts as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own, and their appearance on this podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or an entity they represent. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.